Welcome to the Apex Life podcast from Apex Life Media. That's a capital A, a capital P, a lowercase e, and a capital X. And that stands for Ancient Philosophical Christianity. I contend that the goal of life in ancient philosophical Christianity is to reach the apex of what it means to be a human, the best human a person can be. My name is Tim Side. I'm an independent scholar and the author and publisher of the book Rewriting Paul, original translations of 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon, and Romans. A long list to say, not 1 and 2 Corinthians. My PhD is from Brown University, and I've worked in higher education administration for 17 years, and during most of those years taught several courses a year in New Testament studies. My spouse and I currently live in Indiana, where we raised five daughters, and we have five grandchildren, with one on the way. Since my first podcast, a few things have happened. I started a a two-week Facebook ad promotion of my book, Rewriting Paul. I got a few um, people who, uh, one one woman who liked my uh, Apex Life page, but there was one guy who thought it was trash, and another guy thought it was religious BS. So I guess I'm hitting uh, everybody in a way that uh, they might not like what I'm doing. I want to continue on from where I was last time, talking about uh, the influences I had during my education and the development of my research, my approach. We had uh, been talking about how I went to Wheaton College Graduate School. I had fine uh, uh, professors in that time and got a lot from uh, my experience there. I was, I was, uh, felt privileged uh, to be there. As in other places, I, I worked, much of the time, I worked full-time in the third shift janitorial uh, team. I mainly um, did buffing floors and refinishing floors and shampooing carpets. It's work that I had done during college uh, part-time, but with a wife and a, and a young daughter, uh, it was necessary for me to to work, and uh, it was a, a good experience. But what I want to talk about is a couple of things as I was leaving Wheaton that uh, influenced me. So my last course was an independent study that I did instead of writing a master's thesis. I took extra courses and and wrote uh, wrote a few papers. Uh, so I remember uh, one of the books I I read during this time was. The um, sort of groundbreaking work by E.P. Sanders on Paul and Palestinian Judaism. It really changed my understanding of ancient Judaism. Sanders is known for uh, coining the the phrase covenantal gnomism. So it's the idea that uh, Jews uh, never expected that they would work for their their salvation as Lutheranism taught that that Catholics were just like Jews of old, trying to work for their own salvation, and 
Salvation is by uh, grace through faith alone. But what Sanders showed is that the, the Old Testament, the Torah, teaches that God made a covenant with the Israelites, and that secured their relationship with God. There was nothing else they needed to do. They would recognize God as their God, and God would be their God. That was the arrangement. But God gave them the law so that they would know how to live, provided the sacrifices for them, so in case they sinned, there was some atonement, um, so they would continue to be right with God and experience God's blessing. Judaism was not a legalistic religion in which Jews had to earn their salvation, as taught by Protestant theology. A second area of study was um, awareness that rather than this kind of unity that I was taught in, uh, in Bible school and in the church, uh, this way in which uh, I, I describe it is we have a Bible written in English for us English speakers, and all of it sort of reads the same, as though one author wrote it all, and it's even been translated in ways to smooth over differences. So readers can be unaware that that in the Old Testament they're reading a translation of a Hebrew Bible, and certainly completely unaware that there was a Greek Bible in the time of the early church that that we can see that, that uh, Paul must have been using, for instance. And, and the different uh, letters and uh, gospels that make up the New Testament, when you, when you learn Greek and you begin reading them, you begin seeing, wow, these are really different. Different in vocabulary and syntax structure. And when you look at them in English, they pretty much sound alike. So one of the things that I discovered is that that there's a way in which translators have made Paul uh, sound similar to the Gospel of John. So particularly with this idea that salvation is through faith in Christ. But the student of New Testament Greek is faced with the question of whether this is an objective genitive construction or a subjective genitive. So is it faith in Christ, or is it the faith, faithfulness of Christ? I've been most convinced by the fact that in Romans, Paul uses this same idiom to refer to the faithfulness of Abraham in Romans 4.16. It's not faith in Abraham. That's obvious. It's talking about the faithfulness of Abraham. But Paul is making the argument that this is parallel to the faithfulness of Jesus. So it's taken me many years to work through the impact of that grammatical issue and how then to interpret Romans and Galatians with this perspective on the faithfulness of Christ. But all of this... Um, uh, comes together for me in the areas of, of study that I did. And, and it's in this book that I think I've been able to put all of these things together into one consistent and coherent interpretation of Paul. So a third issue that I was becoming aware of at the end of my time at Wheaton College Graduate School was that I had, uh, I had read uh, Martin Hengel's book on Judaism and Hellenism in college, and uh, for my college thesis, I wrote about the metaphorical meaning of the terminology regarding the shedding of the blood of Jesus. In short, it's, it's an idiom that refers to the death of something without regard for whether that uh, that 
person or animal actually bled to death or not. So I was also interested in Hengel's work, The Atonement, The Origins of the Doctrine in the New Testament. I learned one of the most important concepts about how to understand the language of the death of Christ. So Hengel shows that the language of Paul and other texts in the New Testament fit better the context of the Greek tradition regarding the death of a person having benefit for others. And I, I wrote a paper on this uh, as I studied it further uh, during my uh, doctoral program. So you can find this language uh, in funeral speeches of classical Greece, where the war dead are praised for saving the city from destruction and the gods forgiving the people because of the sacrifice and the death of those soldiers. And most importantly, as a... Um, as I often uh, refer to in my book, uh, the Jewish text we know as 4th Maccabees is the epitome of this concept and even uses the language of atonement of the nation as the result of the endurance of suffering to the extent of death in the part of Eliezer, the high priest. So look at 4th Maccabees chapter 17. Along this, with this, I read um, another very influential book, uh, uh, Harvard Dissertation by Sam K. Williams, Jesus' Death as a Saving Event, the Background and Origin of a Concept. So as I was finishing up at, at Wheaton College, I experienced this uh, point again at which I try to decide between the academy or, or the church. Where's my career going? Where's my work Going to leave me. So this is related then to, to the fact that we no longer were feeling comfortable going to the kind of Bible churches that that we grew up in, and uh, I'd been to to Baptist churches and had not felt welcome there. We explored the Evangelical Covenant Church and even tend a Reformed Baptist church. We were looking for some some place. To, to call home some denomination that we felt comfortable in. So we heard about a church. I'd been listening to some cassettes uh, that were produced by Wheaton College on theology and so on, and somebody mentioned a church, a local church. I think the name was Geneva Road Baptist Church, as I'm recalling. I remember the day that we went there. I was apprehensive going into a Baptist church, I had long hair. Of course, I was sporting my beard, but I soon realized it was not an issue. I had stumbled into the American Baptist Churches USA, and we found a home there and would be members of an ABC USA uh, church uh, for many years to come. So again, I considered the possibility of becoming a pastor, and there was an American Baptist seminary in a nearby suburb of Chicago. So I applied to seminary and uh, and, and showed up there in the fall, uh, but discovered that they had made a change during the summer that I wasn't aware of. They, I was told that a graduate student from Wheaton College with an MA could transfer credits and then finish seminary in one year. They changed it to two years. And then the second mistake I made is I procrastinated in finding a suitable field education experience. And I still can't believe I ended up having to teach a junior high Sunday school class. 
what a challenge that was. But I, I tried my hardest. I, I remember once I created a board game related to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, made a little, uh, mountain on the board game that uh, used a paper clip and a little steel wool dark cloud above it. So I, I really tried, but I became disillusioned. I took a, a class on uh, homiletics when preaching, and we were taught all about uh, how to preach, to have an illustration file, how to do expository preaching. And then at the end, uh, the guy said, now, now I want you to do something creative. And I felt like, well, why have you spent all this time telling us how to do it? And now you're telling us to do something different, something creative. It's possible I didn't do anything. That's how uh, rebellious I can be sometimes. But I did submit an uh, end-of-term paper, and it was on preaching uh, apocalyptic texts. And the professor was quite stunned by the quality of it, as I recall, if I may say so. It just wasn't for me. So I started looking for doctoral programs and uh, applied to three. The only two I'm going to tell you about, uh, because one of them was, in fact, that I applied and uh, went and visited the Jewish Institute of Religion at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. I wanted to, if, if what you needed to do to understand the New Testament was understand the Jewish context, I wanted to go to the place that was going to do the best job. So a friend and I drove from from the Chicago suburbs over to Cincinnati, had lunch with uh, Rabbi Michael Cook. He was quite bewildered what I was doing there. But also while I was there, besides uh, visiting the campus there and visiting the, the shop and maybe buying some Jewish kinds of uh things in a in a gift shop that they had it was all very fascinating and exciting to me. Also went over to the University of Cincinnati uh, just to see the classical studies department because I had in mind I wanted both of these. In my notes I, I titled this section Against All Odds because nobody and no family member, no one around me ever thought I would even get accepted into a university doctoral program. So I was accepted and uh, Brown University, an Ivy League um, graduate school. Then no one thought I would be able to continue beyond the first year of scholarship. It took me 10 years. It involved uh, several years of a leave of absence before dissertation work to work full time. And then when I was able to leave that job, another year to write uh, the dissertation. So I surprised everyone, including myself, by successfully defending my dissertation and walking in commencement as a Brown graduate with a PhD. But I get a little bit ahead of myself. Before moving to New England, we spent um, a summer house-sitting for a family. It was a, a good respite before the New England years. And I thought a lot about what kind of program I wanted to do, this uh, interplay of Judaism and Hellenism. And I got the idea that maybe I would focus on the book of Hebrews, but not, none of my coursework was ever anything to do with the book of Hebrews. But that's not, uh, that's to say, wait a few minutes uh, or another podcast to hear how I came back around to Hebrews. 
So during during these years, um, you know, I took care of the kids uh, while my wife Sue Ann worked full time at Tyndale Publishers in Carroll Stream, Illinois. And then during the last year at Wheaton, I worked part time there at Tyndale. If you don't know, they're the publisher of the Living Bible. Uh, when I was a kid, I used the Living Bible and enjoyed reading. It's a very readable and contemporary. So I do remember the night. Uh, and I mentioned this in the prologue to my book that uh, Ken Taylor, who uh, who created this paraphrase while he was uh, uh, rode the the train into Chicago uh, and created the paraphrase to read to his children. So I had a chance to chat with him one night while I was emptying his trash can. Uh, it makes me smile to to think back on that. But I I spent a lot of time studying the Greek and Hebrew, the Bible. Spent time looking up words in a passage in lexicons and studying the syntax by pouring over books of grammar. I had created for myself a form that I would list all of the, the words, the word in the context, its lexical form, parse the word, describe its function in the passage, and enter some English words which could translate that term. Very diligent, very uh, tedious work that I had been doing in my life. I learned how to create uh, diagramming of Greek sentences. I went through a phase where I outlined books of the Bible to the degree that I had subpoints for each phrase of a sentence in that book of the Bible. So this was the kind of work I did before ever going to Brown University. So I, I did travel there ahead of time and, and uh, scoped things out. Finally found a place uh, that we, we could live. Um, my first experience, uh, you know, living in a city and, uh, and learning how to wait for a bus and know where the bus is going at that time of the day and where it's going to drop me off. The program at Brown was one called uh, History of Religions, Early Christianity. If you remember the first podcast, I, I mentioned that when I went to Wheaton, this history of religions approach uh, was the foil against which those of the uh, salvation history approach uh, would, would contrast themselves. Basically, an approach that, uh, that studied uh, Greek religion, Greek-Roman uh, mystery religions, uh, thought of uh, Paul as uh, having this worship of, of the Lord, uh, in ritualistic ways that were similar to to the mystery religions as they were called and uh, and Gnosticism before I actually arrived, I learned that uh, their primary uh, professor in Hellenistic Judaism, a man named Horst Murring, had become ill, passed away that that summer before approaching before I arrived in in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. I, I knew that uh, the great uh, Jacob Neusner was at Brown University at the time in the Judaic Studies Department. Uh, he's one who uh, coined this phrase, formative Judaisms. Uh, and there's a lot of his work that has uh, influenced me indirectly. I never met uh, Professor Neusner, although I was doing some work on a Saturday afternoon in the Judaic Studies Department, preparing a professor's book manuscript. 
And uh, the door, I think, was closed to the office, but I overheard some conversation in the hallway and knew that Neusner's office was directly across the hallway. So I heard the conversation end, heard a door close, and then for like five or ten minutes, I heard this flurry of key clacking, and all of a sudden it stopped. Heard the door open and close, and the sound of footsteps faded down the hallway. And I remember thinking to myself, well, Neusner's just completed just wrote another chapter in his latest book. So people who know Judaic studies and Christian studies might know Neusner. He was a prolific author. For the next few years, Brown uh, hired visiting scholars to fill the vacancy that Professor Murring had left. These were eminent scholars who were giving, given a, a, you know, a stipend and so on to be a visiting professor so they could do research and maybe teach one or two classes. So I'll talk about uh, some of them in a minute. But my, my mentor, at least that's what I, way I viewed him as my mentor, was uh, Stan Stowers. So I, I would not say I was his star pupil in any way. I did get A's in my courses with him. I think maybe the highest compliment he ever gave me was that I was persistent I remember another student uh, trying to say something nice, I guess, to me and, and, and said that I was a late bloomer and she, she thought that uh, someday I would uh, sort of reach my stride. So I'm still waiting for that to happen. Um, I'm hoping in some way this book that I'm talking about satisfies that. So my, my main uh, uh, person that I studied with was Stan Stowers. So he had published a dissertation from when he was at Yale on the form of the diatribe in Romans. And so I, I carefully studied his book, and we had a, a class in, in Romans, a seminar. And I remember it just kind of blew my mind to realize that in Greek, Paul would change the pronoun from the plural directed to the audience to the singular. So we would miss this in our contemporary English, since we have no... The, no change from uh, ye to thee. It's just you. I was fascinated with this and, and did a lot of spent a lot of time studying it. Stan referred to the the, the single individual that, that Paul would direct himself to as the imaginary interlocutor. So that's one of those phrases that my family heard often and others as well. I had never heard the term interlocutor, but it uh, does kind of roll off the tongue. So the result of paying attention to this literary device is the consistency, then, of Paul's address to Gentiles. So the claim is the assertion that Paul had no problem with Judeans observing Torah, but his focus was on the Gentile nations, the Gentile peoples no longer needing to become Judeans through circumcision and law-keeping because of the faithfulness of Christ in his death, which caused God to consider an atonement for the sins of the Gentile nations. So it was not easy for me to change my understanding of Romans and early Christianity to this perspective. In fact, it was years after graduation that I, I met Stan at a Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting and, and told him, I get it now. And then I would go on to, to reread every few years his book, a rereading of Romans, Justice, Jews, and Gentiles. By me naming my book a rewriting of Paul is an homage 
uh, to my mentor in his book, A Rereading. So I named mine A Rewriting of Paul. And my book is dedicated to Stan. And he was nice enough to let's say that I could do that and that he was flattered that I wanted to do that. So another thing that Stan was working at a time, at the time that influenced uh, his students was he was working on a book on Greco-Roman epistolography called Letter Writing in Greco-Roman Antiquity. So this sparked my interest then in letter writing and in classical rhetoric. And I even took a class in the classical studies department and then I would also take classes uh, one on the second sophistic period and one on the scribal practices and papyrology and codicology and, and took a class of learning, learning Latin. So it was during this period that were, there were New Testament scholars who were, were taking this uh, understanding, this way of, of reading letters and other documents. Uh, how does this help us understand the way these texts are written? studying them through the lens of, of Greek rhetoric. So I read the classical rhetorical handbooks, read many examples of speeches, primarily focusing on epideictic or praise speeches. The other two types were the judicial or forensic and the deliberative speeches. And then I studied the elementary exercises. Another good uh, Greek word is the progymnasmata of Theon, Hermogenes, and Aphthonius. So this gave me a much greater understanding then of the writing of literature in Greek during this period and the practice of Paul's writing of letters, the literary features that are present in those letters, and the purpose to persuade people to a particular way of life. So then another area of study that uh, we had was Greco-Roman moral philosophy. So I was uh, introduced to an approach made popular by Yale professors uh, Abraham Malherbe and before him Nils Dahl. One can find many of their students, including Stan Stowers, who demonstrate in their research the significance of Hellenistic philosophy for understanding the letters of Paul. So I have spent many years studying Greek philosophy, Aristotle, the Socrates of Plato, the Platonists such as Philo and Plutarch, the Stoics like Epictetus and Seneca, Cynic philosophers like Diogenes and Crates and the Epicureans, Epicurus, Philodemus, and Lucretius. And over the, the past uh, 15 years or so, every other year, it seemed like I reread Martha Nussbaum's book, The Therapy of Desire, Theory and Practice in Hellenistic Ethics. So two other areas of, of study, one was introducing, being introduced to this concept of psychagogy, and I talk about this in, in my book. It's the idea that Greek philosophy was seen as the process of the sage leading or guiding the soul of the person whose soul had been led astray or injured by the false judgments of society about what is good and virtuous. So Paul's letters begin by explaining the situation of his Gentile readers and then culminate in his moral exhortations for how they should live. So this is what I've tried to do. And in my book, I explain in more detail what psychagogy is, uh, the philosophical practices of Hellenistic philosophy. So I hope you'll read that. Lastly is, uh, is the practice of studying early Christian texts within, within their sociological 
settings. So we spent a lot of time working in sociology, anthropology, and one of the Ian Watershed books in this is called The First Urban Christians, The Social World of the Apostle Paul. Some of my work wasn't uh, just with Stan and a few others. As I've said, there were visiting scholars, so I had a class with Howard Clark Key on Luke Acts, a class on Pharisees with uh, Anthony Saldarini, a class, a seminar on the Wisdom of Solomon with Burton Mack, who was just publishing his book on the Gospel of Mark. So I was interested in the Gospels, and I read all I could and, and, and tried to study this area that is called the quest for the historical Jesus. So I want to talk some about how this then influenced how I thought about Jesus, how I thought about Christianity, and what it meant for me to be intellectually honest and to attend church, be a Christian. Join me next time. Thanks. Thanks.